0: Well, as I've already mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. It's the sixth and final Sunday of Lent, the beginning of Holy Week. And as I mentioned already, I do hope you all will be able to join us for our Maundy Thursday service on 10 o'clock on Thursday, the 13th, in recognition of the Last Supper of Jesus' disciples, and then a 10 a.m. Good Friday Tenebrae, service of darkness. So please join us for those. Then, of course, we will be joining at 10 o'clock here on Easter morning to celebrate the risen Christ. Today, Palm Sunday, is the day we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the start of this week, this week that would end in his arrest, in his betrayal, his beating, and his death by crucifixion. Now, the importance of this story is reflected in the fact that it appears in all four of the Gospels that we have in the New Testament. I'm going to be reading you a passage now from the book of Matthew, the 21st chapter, starting with the first verse, which gives us the story of this entry. I'm going to read the first three verses and then skip down to verse 6 through 9. So this is Matthew 21, the first through the third verses, and then verses 6 to 9. Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Okay, let's not bring that up yet. We'll get there. I want to explain to you a little bit about the meaning of the spreading of the garments and of the palms in front of Jesus as he enters uh, Jerusalem on this day. The Romans had made a tradition whenever a victorious leader returned from a victorious campaign of spreading their cloaks on the pathway in front as a sign of welcome and of blessing on these victorious leaders. It's also true in the Old Testament in the second uh, book of Second Kings that the king of Israel, Jehu, they did the same thing for him. They spread their cloaks on the ground as a way of showing honor for him. This is sort of the ancient equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. It's a sign of the importance of the one who is arriving. In this case, it is Jesus who has been welcomed as the son of David, the Messiah. Similarly, the spreading of branches was something that was traditionally done by the Jewish people at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a symbol of victory, of liberty, and of joy. It's from that spreading of these tree branches, and those trees almost certainly were palm trees. If you've ever been in Israel, you'll know there are not a whole lot of other kinds of trees around. That um, those palm trees give us the symbol that we use here on Palm Sunday, which are the palm fronds. The meaning of Hosanna, which we've been singing about, which we read in this passage, literally is save. Hosanna means save or save us. But in particular, this word is an imperative, meaning technically it's an order. There's an urgency, an insistence about it. So it quite literally means save us now. It's practically like the people are giving a command. Now, um, Hosanna was also used as a sign of praise, but it means save us now. It's important for us to recognize that when these people are calling for Jesus to save them, we talk all the time about Jesus saving that Jesus saves, and people are saved in Jesus. But what the people here are asking for is not that kind of spiritual salvation. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted an earthly salvation. The expectation of the Jewish people was that the promised Messiah, which means the anointed one, the Jewish word Messiah, or Mashiach, is the same as the Greek word Christ. Both mean the anointed one. Anointed, you, anointed kings and priests and prophets. They expected that the Messiah would be the anointed king who would come from the line of David and would be a warrior king, just like David had been. That like David, he would free the Jews from the oppression of their enemies, that all of their earthly enemies would be put down and that they would be lifted up to a place of importance, of prominence, as in the times of David and Solomon. Now, by this time of Jesus... The oppressors for the Jewish people were the Romans. And so the Jews assumed that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to come to Jerusalem and begin the rebellion that would overthrow the Romans and free the Jewish people from their political captivity to these oppressors. As far as the Jews were concerned, there was nothing particularly spiritual about their messianic expectations. It was to be an earthly kind of salvation. Despite the fact that Jesus, over three years or so of ministry, had preached and healed and driven out evil spirits and had had nothing to do with political or military power, even though he had been foretelling his death at the hands of those in authority, people still expected that Jesus was going to be the kind of military Messiah that they wanted, like King David, to throw out the Romans and restore Israel's greatness. But on this particular Sunday, as Jesus comes in to the city of Jerusalem, everyone thought, it's finally happening. This is going to be great. This coming week, which was the most important week in the Jewish year, the Passover week, this is going to be the time when Jesus, this healer, this Messiah, this great man of power, was going to take his rightful place as king and liberator. But over the next few days, as we now know, things took a very different turn. So much so that on Thursday night, this is only Thursday after the triumphant entry on Sunday, Jesus is arrested outside the Garden of Gethsemane by the Jewish guards. And on Friday morning, he is brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who was the only one who could decide the fate of people accused of capital crimes. The Jews were allowed to have their own trials. But if they determined that someone had done something that was worthy of death, they had to go to the Romans and get permission, because only the Romans, as the ruling power, had the right to commit capital punishment, meaning to put somebody to death. And so this is why he is brought to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. This is the story that we read in our Gospel reading just a few minutes ago. Now, as we read, Pilate has already decided that Jesus is not at fault in any way. And Pilate's wife has a dream about Jesus that she's very troubled by, and she sends a message to her husband, who's already out there in front of this great crowd at this trial, and she tells her husband, don't have anything to do with this innocent man, she called him. Now as we read, there was a tradition in that time that the Romans would release one Jewish prisoner at every Passover season. This was simply a a way to sort of pat them on the head. It was a, a, a generous act, to kind of keep them from being too upset because they're always at the point of rebellion. And so every little thing the Romans thought they could do to make them feel a little better about themselves might prevent a rebellion. So every year they would release one prisoner. And in this case, Pilate gives them the choice. Do you want to release Barabbas, who was a well-known murderer and a seditionist? He had fought against the government. Or do you want to release Jesus, who was known as the Messiah? Murderer? Messiah. Which one do you want me to release? And Pilate thought it was obvious they would want to release Jesus, who was known as the Messiah. But instead, when he offers it to them, they cry out for him, them to release, for Pilate to release Barabbas. And that's when we read this passage, which we just went through in Matthew 27. If you would put that up, please. Um, This is part of what we just read, but I want you to look at it. What shall I do, Pilate says then, with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asks, they all answer, crucify him. So they're not only turning against Jesus, but they are crying for him to be executed. Not beaten, not exiled, not imprisoned, but killed in the most horrendous way possible. There was no worse punishment available. And the the group, the crowd, is saying crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate? And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead of up, the uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. How little did they know how true that was. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the same crowd of people who were there five days earlier on Sunday. The same group of people who were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same people who spread their cloaks in front of Jesus, who spread palm leaves in front of Jesus as a way of greeting him as the conqueror, as the Messiah, as the new king. And now, five days later, on Friday morning, they are crying out in angry voices for him to be crucified. What possibly could have caused the change? Now, we do read in the passage that the leaders of the Jewish religion, of the Jewish authorities, had been actively spinning this thing to try to get the people against Jesus. But what was it that would cause them to go from proclaiming him Messiah... Save us, son of David, to demanding that he be crucified. Well, my own belief about this, and this is not something many commentators talk about, when I consider this difference, I think the problem is that on the first Palm Sunday, the crowds had thought Jesus was going to give them what they wanted. Freedom and power and influence like they'd had in David's day. Under David and Solomon, Israel was a fairly significant kingdom. And so they demanded, save us now. Not save us spiritually, but save us politically. Save us in an earthly sense. But by that next Friday, five days later, it had become very clear that Jesus was not going to be able to do that. Or at least he was not going to choose to do that, as we know. That he was not going to give the people what they wanted. He was not going to be their political leader, their military leader. He was not going to cast out the Romans. Instead... He was found guilty of a capital crime and was about to be killed in the most horrendous way possible, and in a way that not only was terrifically painful, but also was a sign of a curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, the Jewish Bible says. So the people, because they were not going to get what they wanted out of this Jesus... He was not going to be the kind of Messiah they wanted. They called for him to be crucified. They had been disappointed. You have not fulfilled our expectations. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves here some 2,000 years later is, are we just like that crowd in Jerusalem? I believe many of us as Christians, many of us who profess the name of Jesus today, are still, in effect doing exactly what that crowd of Jewish people did in Jerusalem so very long ago. Oh, Jesus is fine and good as long as he gives us what we want and he doesn't make too many demands on us. Then he's our Messiah and Savior. I call myself a Christian. As long as Jesus doesn't expect more than one hour a week, preferably not too early on a Sunday morning and also not when there's an important game on that afternoon, or not when we have an opportunity to go to the beach. As long as he doesn't get unreasonable in his demands on our time, then we're good with him being our Messiah. As long as Jesus is there to answer our prayers, to give us what we ask for, in exactly the way we ask for it, and when we ask for it, without bothering us with the expectation that we find time to talk to him even when we don't need anything from him. As long as that's the case, then we're fine with him being our Messiah. As long as Jesus doesn't expect us to do anything boring, like read the Bible, or do anything that's not fun, like help out people who are in need in our community, as long as Jesus is clear that those are our expectations, then we're okay with Him being our Messiah. As long as Jesus gives us enough money and material blessings and doesn't expect, them, expect us to spend that money on Him or on the church or on anybody else, because it's our money after all, then we're good with Him. As long as He doesn't affect our net profit, in other words, then He can be our Messiah. As long as we never have to suffer any kind of physical pain, or emotional pain, or psychological pain, or spiritual pain, as long as there's no pain of any kind for us or for those we love, as long as Jesus can guarantee us that, then we're good with Him being our Messiah. As long as Jesus is clear about minding His own business, and isn't a stick in the mud who doesn't uh, want us to cut loose and have fun once in a while, as long as he doesn't judge us or expect us to be too different from other people, especially our wild, fun friends, then he can be our Messiah. Do you get the point? The problem with the people in Jerusalem during that first Holy Week, the ones who celebrated Jesus as the Messiah, was that as soon as they discovered that he was not going to give them everything they wanted, they rejected him. And they rejected him because they didn't really understand who Jesus was. I told the story before about when I was in seminary in Southern California. I was attending an Anglican church, and the the rector of this church was very famous. He was one of the most famous Anglican priests, or Episcopal priests, because it's in the U.S., in the country. There were a lot of magazine articles written about him, said, I mean, he was very liberal. He preached a sermon one Sunday called What It Means to Be a Christian. And the conclusion by this very famous rector was that to be a Christian meant to go where Jesus went and to do what Jesus did. And Jesus went to the poor and he cared for them. So to be a Christian meant going to the poor and caring for them. I, at that time, was teaching a Monday night discussion group, a small group at that church, And after this sermon, one of the, shall we say, somewhat less spiritual men from the group I was leading, came up to me and got right in my face and said, what do you think about that? Because I had been talking about the spiritual aspect of what it meant to be a Christian. And I said, well, we'll talk about it when we get together this week. So the night we got together, I told my little group that I agreed very much with this famous rector, that it was critically important that we be obedient in caring for the needs of the poor, of the hungry, and the oppressed. And you know that that's much of what this church is about, and much of what I feel very strongly we have to be about. But I told them that more fundamentally than that, I disagreed with this famous rector, because going to the poor and caring for them, as important as it is, is not what it means to be a Christian. The important point I insisted on then and I still insist on today is not where Jesus went or what he did, it was who he is. The very thing that makes Jesus different from any other religious leader that has ever lived is that he was the very son of the one true God. Nothing he said or nothing he did would make very much difference if that were not the case. In fact, I can say if I were looking for a social model, I probably would pick the fivefold path of Buddha. But I'm not looking for a social model. I'm looking for a Messiah, a Savior, the Son of God Himself. And only Jesus is that. Now, once we get that straight, once we have it clear in our minds and hearts that Jesus is not just a great teacher and a great guy who had some great ideas and a very effective approach to ministry... Once we're clear that He was and is the very Son of God, that changes the whole rest of the picture. Because it means that now we have to recognize who's really calling the shots. You see, the first century Jews in Jerusalem thought the Messiah was coming to serve them, to meet their needs, to give them what they wanted politically. That, after all, was the Messiah's job, or so they thought. If Jesus was not going to make their wishes come true in the way that they wanted, if He was not going to do what they thought He should do, then they not only wouldn't follow Him, they would have Him killed. But the Messiah Jesus wasn't there to meet their needs. At least, not first and foremost. He did that, but he did it because of who he was, the divine son of God. And God does not exist to give us or anyone else the things we want, although in his mercy and kindness he often does give us good gifts. God does not exist to serve us. God is not the cosmic bellhop, and we ring our little bell and expect him to bring us the drinks with a little umbrella in them. That is not God's job. God is God, and instead we exist to worship and to serve God. To accept His decrees and His directives, to be His children and His servants. It was for this that we are made. We were made for relationship with God, and not an equal relationship. It's not that, as Crocodile Dundee said, me and God, we're mates. No, He is the only true God of the universe. He made me. He is my creator and I am one. I am here to serve Him and to worship Him. It's for that that I was made. And compared to what God wants, what I want is less than insignificant. It's, it's irrelevant. Now again, God loves us and He gives us good things. All the good things we have come from His hand. But it is not because we have a right to demand that or get upset with God when He doesn't do it. I have known people who would go their whole life and not pay any attention to God at all until they come to a crisis in their life. An illness on their part or on the part of a family member, a beloved one. And all of a sudden they pray to God and say, please heal. And then when God doesn't, they get angry at God. And say, the one time that I needed God and he was not there for me. And I believe God says, well, what about all the other times when I was there and you didn't even bother to talk to me? And yet you expect me to show up and give you what you want when you want it? Is that the nature of relationship? God is God and we are not. God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve Him. But He is a loving God and He does good by His people. We should come to God because He is God. He made us. He made everything else in the world. He loves us. He saved us through His Son, Jesus. He is worthy of our praise and worship. And he wants to be in relationship with us now and forever. That's why we come to God. Not so that he will give us what we want. Because, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but half the time what I want is not what I should get. G.K. Chesterton said, not all desires are desirable. Meaning, a lot of the things I think I want, better for me I don't get them. God knows that. If we come to God, if we accept Christ because we think he will give us stuff, if we do it because of what we think we can get out of the deal, then the very first time things go wrong, the very first time we don't get what we want, we will turn away from God faster than you can say selfish much. So we have to ask ourselves, Are we just like the Jerusalem crowds on that first Palm Sunday, ready to acclaim Jesus as Messiah if he gives us what we want, but ready to kick him to the curb if he doesn't? What, after all, is the basis of our relationship with Jesus? It's a question I hope that this week, of all the weeks of the year, you will consider. This holy week, I want you to ask, what is my relationship with Jesus? What is my expectation of him and what is his rightful expectation of me? I hope you'll consider that and pray over that this week of all weeks. Amen.